Welcome to Spiritual Gold, the teaching ministry of Dr. Richard L. Strauss. I'm Dr. Mark Strauss, and these podcasts represent the faithful exposition of God's Word by my father through his 21-year ministry at Emmanuel Faith Community Church. Our prayer is that through these messages, you would be encouraged and equipped in your walk with the Lord. The theme of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, is the theme of unity, harmony, oneness, concord, peace in the body of Jesus Christ. We saw the plea for unity in the first six verses last Sunday evening. The burden of that plea was in verses 1 to 3. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, plead with you that you walk worthy of the vocation to which you're called, with all lowliness and meekness, with all long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the burden of the plea. Tells us how to do it, how to keep the unity of the Spirit, is to, to develop lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, and forbearance. But in verses 4 to 6, we saw the basis for the plea, the built-in unity that exists in the body of Christ. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. A sevenfold built-in unity, which is the basis for the practical expression and outworking of unity in the body of Christ. That's the plea. But God has not left us without some provision to obey his plea. And verses 7 to 11 reveal to us the provision for unity. And surprisingly enough, that provision is in the form of spiritual gifts, God-given abilities for service. Now, at first sight, it may, may be difficult to understand how spiritual gifts can have anything to do with unity, but they do. See, God saved us for a purpose. He didn't just save us to drift along and through our earthly life until he takes us home into heaven. He's got a job for us to do. He's got a function for us to perform. And if he's led us to a specific local church, then I believe he has a function for us to fulfill through that local church. Every member of the body of Christ has a job to do. There's a job for everybody, and if everybody's doing his job, working together in Christian harmony, then there's going to be unity in the body of Christ. Everybody has a function to perform, and everybody's, if everybody is doing or performing the function God gives him to perform, then he doesn't have time to criticize anybody else for the way he's doing his job. He's just concerned about doing what God wants him to do and fulfilling his responsibility in the body. And when everybody's working together like that, doing what they're supposed to do, making their contribution to the body, it all works together in unity and harmony and love. Mechanisms work that way. Did you ever take the back off your watch and look in there? Everything's just working just right. Moving around, you know. I don't know what it's all doing, but it's all kind of moving around and keeps doing the same thing and keeps time, you know. But you introduce something foreign into that mechanism and you got trouble. You take a 16-penny nail and drive it in there with a hammer, you know. You're going to have a little problem with the mechanism. It isn't going to work right. You take something out, you know. You reach in there and pull out the mainspring, for instance. And it isn't going to work anymore. That mechanism is not going to fun function properly. 
because everything's not there operating as it should be. The human body is the same way. Every part of the body has a function to perform and a contribution to make to the human body. You take some parts out and the body's not going to function as efficiently and effectively. Some parts can be removed and the body can still function. But we have a name for them. They are handicapped people. If they do not have all the parts that are supposed to be there to function. You take some parts out and just not going to have any living body at all, you know. The heart decides it's going to stop pumping blood, then, then that's the end of it all, see. The human body is not a mechanism, it's an organism. But it works the same way. Every part has something to contribute to the whole and has to be doing its part, making its contribution. And the body of Christ is just like that. Every member of the body has something to contribute, a function to perform in the body. If everybody's doing the job God gave them to do, doing it as well as they can do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the whole body is going to keep on working. The body of Christ is an organism too. And every member has something to contribute. And that's God's provision for unity. And it's described for us in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verses 7 to 11. It's the whole subject of spiritual gifts. We have the presentation of gifts in verse 7. Christ's privilege to give gifts in verses 8 and to 10. And the persons that he gave in the form of gifted people. Verse 11. So let's look at these few verses tonight. It says in verse 7, But unto every one of us is given grace, according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Grace. It's a normal Greek word for grace. There are other words for gift. Paul doesn't choose to use them here. He uses the word grace. But the word grace can mean a gift graciously given. And that's obviously what he's talking about here because as we move on, in fact, the very next verse we read, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts to men. And the word grace is sometimes used in the New Testament to refer to gifts that are graciously given. God-given abilities for service. And that's the subject. To every one of us. But unto every one of us is given grace gifts. Grace, gifts to every one of us. Now, I hear a lot of Christians saying, Oh, I just can't do anything. I can't sing and I can't play and I can't preach and I can't teach. I can't do anything. Dear Christian friends, that is not true. God said, But unto every one of us is given grace. And that's not the only place God says it. You can see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. You'd like to see other places. Just so you're sure you understand that God has given you at least one spiritual gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man for profit. One has translated this, Some personal gift by which he shows forth the Spirit is given to every man. God gives this spiritual gift or gifts to every believer. Turn over to 1 Peter 4.10. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. As each one, not every man, 
It's not talking about men alone here. It's talking about everybody. It doesn't say man in the Greek text. It says, as each one has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. How many people have received a spiritual gift? Everyone. Every member of the body of Christ. You say, but I don't know what my gift is. Well, God wants us, first of all, to know what gifts are available. There's no way you're going to know what yours is unless you know what they are. So you need to get into the Word and study spiritual gifts. There are four basic passages you need to be familiar with. One is 1 Corinthians 12. One is Romans 12. One is Ephesians 4. And one is 1 Peter 4. So you've got two 12s and two 4s. It shouldn't be hard to, re- to recall that. The four central passages on spiritual gifts. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. You need to think about that. Get into that. Study it. Learn what those gifts for, or, uh, are, what they are, first of all. You're going to learn, as Warren Wiersbe has said in his little commentary on Ephesians, the gifts are not toys to play with. They are tools to build with. I like that. And he says, if they're not exercised in love, they become weapons to fight with. And that's a sad state of affairs, which has happened in some local churches. But we need to exercise them in love, and then they become tools to build with. Let's just look at one passage briefly. I'm not going to go through all the lists of spiritual gifts, but turn back to Romans 12 for a minute, will you? I want to show you a couple gifts that maybe you have. I'm of the opinion that lots of believers have these three. Romans 12, verse 8. Or ministry, as if God has given you the gift of ministry, then let's get busy with our ministering. word means serving. Over in 1 Corinthians 12, I think it's the very same gift Paul calls there the gift of helps. Now, spiritual gifts are different from natural abilities. You're born with your natural abilities. God gave them to you at birth. Spiritual gifts are divinely bestowed abilities for serving Jesus Christ. They're different. But you know, when you you get to the gift of helps, I think in many cases God is using natural abilities in service for Him. That's probably what's involved in the gift of ministering or helps. gift would be exercised by driving a bus or running a printing press or pulling weeds or chauffeuring some children to church on Wednesday night in your automobile or any number of things. We could probably list literally hundreds of things that could be done by people exercising the gift of helps. That's what the men on the mission are using. They're using their gift of helps. They're taking natural abilities and applying them to the service of Jesus Christ to do something that needs to be done for the smooth working of the body of Christ. That's the gift of helps or ministering. Go down to verse 8. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation, or he that giveth, let him do it with liberality. Giving. I'm of the opinion that almost, not everyone, but almost every Christian in the United States of America could have the gift of giving if he wanted to could give liberally and sacrificially to the Lord. We have so much, so much more than anyone else on earth. We could surely learn to give. If we sought this gift, the willingness, the joy, the ability to give as unto the Lord, God might bestow this on us supernaturally. Or he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. 
showing mercy. That's just being kind to people in need. Going out of our way to, to share not only material things, but love and kindness and graciousness and time and a listening ear and an encouraging word to people who are needy. The gift of showing mercy. Lots of people could have that if they wanted it. They would ask God to bestow upon them this ability and this desire. Very means of working in the world today. A lot of good parachurch organizations are doing a lot of good things. But you don't find them in the New Testament. What you find in the New Testament is the local church. So I have to say, it's God's primary means of working in the world today. And every believer ought to be identified with one and serving the Lord in some way in and through that local body of believers. That's why we have a church membership. It is to help us have a sense of responsibility. A lot of people come to Emmanuel Faith and aren't members. That's all right. They're welcome to come. We enjoy having them. We appreciate you being here if you're not a member of this church. But it would be a good thing to assume some responsibility as well as enjoying the privileges. Sometimes people don't seek church membership because they want the privileges without the responsibilities. And that's not really fair, is it? Responsibility and loyalty comes with membership. That's why it's... We don't find church membership in the New Testament. I have to admit it's a man-made thing. But it's a useful thing because it helps us understand our responsibility to exercise some spiritual gift that God has given to us through this local assembly of believers. God wants us to find our gifts, to develop our gifts, and to use our gifts. And when we do, <clears throat> there's going to be unity in the body because that's really the basic thrust of this whole passage of Scripture. Now notice, please, that Jesus Christ gives these gifts. They're given to every one of us according to the measure of the gift of Christ. He's doing the measuring or distributing of gifts that He possesses. They're His to give. He does it through the Spirit because over in 1 Corinthians 12 it says the Spirit distributes them. So the Lord Jesus does it through the ministry of the Spirit. He gives them as He pleases. We can ask Him for certain gifts, but He still does it sovereignly. If he does it, if he gives the gifts, then certainly there can't be any pride involved in whatever gift God has given us and whatever position he's put us in to exercise that gift. We can't get puffed up over what God's doing through us because he's the one who gave it in the first place. He gets all the glory, you see. Neither should there be any envy and, or jealousy of others who maybe have a more prominent gift that we have, than we have. Because God gives these gifts, he places the members in the body as he sees fit. They're given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Ephesians 4, 7. The presentation of gifts. Now Paul anticipates a problem. If Jesus Christ is the one to give gifts, he probably is thinking in his mind, those folks are going to be asking themselves, what right does Jesus Christ have to give those gifts? Are they really his to distribute? So he spends a few verses describing Christ's privilege to give. And that's what verses 8 to 10 is all about. It's a rather technical passage of Scripture. I won't bore you tonight with technicalities, but I really have to spend some time here because I have some convictions about this passage of Scripture. It don't always coincide with everybody else's convictions either. And I seldom teach this, but somebody doesn't get mad at me. So please don't get mad at me. All right? I love you. And even if you disagree with me, you can disagree with me in a loving way, okay? I'm not a heretic. I really believe this is what the passage teaches. It says, Wherefore he saith, verse 8, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. That verse is a paraphrase from Psalm 68, 18. 
It's a psalm written by David, and it's a psalm about victory over his enemies, who are likewise the enemies of God. And it probably refers to David taking the spoils of battle from the enemies of God and distributing them to his people. He ascends up on high. That's probably a reference to ascending up on the Temple Mount. Psalm 68, 18. Thou hast ascended on high and hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men. Received gifts? That sounds like a contradiction to what it says here. Thou hast given gifts unto men. But the Hebrew word really means to receive with a view to passing on. So it's really not a contradiction. But Paul uses the quote, and it is in all probability a messianic psalm. David wrote it about himself, but it looks forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that that is the case. He takes that psalm and applies it to the Lord Jesus. He uses the quote to show that Jesus Christ has the right to give gifts because he too is victorious over God's enemies. That's the parallel in the passage, you see. It's the same idea the psalmist has. The first gift Jesus promised to give was the Holy Spirit. He told his disciples, when I go back to the Father, I'm going to send you the Comforter. Did he have a right to do that? He surely did because his ascension to the Father was the mark of his victory over God's enemies. So he had a right to send the Spirit and he has a right to distribute spiritual gifts. He ascended up on high and led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Who is that captivity that he led captive? I've read a number of commentaries on this. Some say it's Satan. It may well be Satan. Uh... Satan's one who holds others in captivity, in bondage to sin. Consequently, that could very well mean or be what it means. This one who holds others captive is now led captive himself. And when Jesus Christ died on that cross, was buried in a tomb and arose triumphant over sin and death, he arose triumphant over Satan. And his ascension to the Father was the mark of his victory over Satan. He led captivity captive. Other commentaries said it's talking about captives. Because the Hebrew word back in Psalm 68 has the idea of a host of captives. And that may be. If so, it is probably the host of captives that were once held in bondage by Satan who have now been released by Jesus Christ. But in any case, Jesus Christ has a right to give gifts because of his triumph over the enemy. And his ascension to the right hand of the Father, which is a position of sovereign glory, and gives him the right to distribute gifts. To men. Now let me tell you what I don't think it means. I don't see anything in the context in Psalm 68 or in the context of Ephesians 4 that will lead us to believe this refers to Jesus Christ releasing captives from Hades. There's absolutely nothing here that would imply that. I do not think it refers to Christ's ascent to hell and release of Old Testament believers into the presence of God. There isn't anything that would even lead us to believe that whatsoever that's foreign to the context nowhere in the bible do we ever is it ever even implied to my knowledge that old testament saints are in captivity to anybody much less to satan who is god's enemy and they are certainly old testament saints are certainly not the enemies of god which is the implication from psalm 68 so i don't think that's what it's teaching at all i think it's teaching satan or jesus victory over satan and those he held in bondage at the cross. But what about the parenthesis in verses 9 and 10? Doesn't that teach Jesus to send into hell? It says, Now that he ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. 
He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Doesn't that say he descended into the lower parts of the earth? Well, it does say that in many English translations, but I have to tell you that the Greek text doesn't necessarily mean that. It could say he descended even into the lower parts, even the earth. That's a valid translation of the passage. In other words, the earth is really what the lower parts are. And that makes a whole lot more sense than descending into the lower parts of the earth. He descended into the lower parts, yes, even the earth. Jesus Christ came as low as the earth, in other words. Because that's where he ascended from. Read Acts 1 and you'll see that he ascended to the Father from the earth. He didn't ascend from hell, he ascended from the earth. Acts chapter 1. And Paul always speaks in parallels. If he ascended from the earth, then he's probably saying he descended to the earth. Heaven and earth are contrasted many times in the scripture. In fact, the earth is called in other passages of scripture the lower parts. Maybe I need to show you this. Ephesians, or hold your place in Ephesians and look at Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, 23. Isaiah 44, 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord hath done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. What's he talking about? The heart of the earth? No. Look. Break forth into sing, you mountains, O forest, and every tree therein. When he says the lower parts of the earth, he's talking about the lower parts which are the earth. Look at one other passage. Acts chapter 2 and verse 19. Acts 2.19. Peter's message on the day of Pentecost, he says, quoting the Old Testament, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. The earth beneath. See, the earth is considered to be beneath the heavens. It is the lower parts. But I want to show you one other passage, which to me is the clincher. John chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus is speaking in his interview with Nicodemus. And he says in John three thirteen, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. Jesus himself uses almost identical language to Paul that Paul uses in Ephesians 4. And he's talking about his descent to the earth and his ascent from the earth. And that, I believe, is what he's talking about in Ephesians chapter 4. What he's saying is, Jesus Christ came to the earth. He's talking about his incarnation, his life on earth, his death for our sins, and his resurrection victorious over sin and Satan and death. He came to the earth. And then he ascended from the earth to, the, to heaven's glory, to that sovereign position at the Father's right hand where he now has the right to give gifts to men. He's qualified because he descended to the earth and ascended to the Father. Now, I'm sure that's raised a lot of questions in your mind. There's another passage of Scripture that some turn to to prove that Jesus Christ descended into hell. And that's part of the Apostles' Creed. Remember, the apostles didn't write the Apostles' Creed. It was written many years later. 
and I personally am not sure that particular statement, descended into hell, is a biblical doctrine. Now you can throw tomatoes or crucify me if you want, but uh, I, I just, that's my feeling. 1 Peter 3 doesn't teach it, and someday we'll... Well, I think I did talk about it when we taught 1 Peter 3. So I've been through this before. And I had some people mad at me that night. I remember that now. Mm. Well, anyway, Jesus does have the privilege to give gifts. He's proved it. He has ascended to the Father. Now, notice what else he gives. Not only spiritual gifts to all people, but he gives gifted men to his body. Verse 11, and he gave some apostles, this could mean he gave some to be apostles, or it could mean he gave to the church some apostles, it could mean either one, it's not clear, commentators disagree on it, it doesn't matter to me, take it either way you want. I like the one, he, he gave some to be apostles, and he gave some to be prophets, and he gave some to be evangelists, and he gave some to be pastor teachers, the last one is really one. Because those words, and some, are missing from the word teacher. There's just one and some before the two words connected with an and. So most Bible commentators will tell you that the last two are really combined in one. So there's really four categories of gifted men who hold particular offices and perform particular functions in the local church. There are apostles, there are prophets, there are evangelists, and there are pastor teachers. This is basically the leadership of the New Testament church. Let's go through them briefly. First of all, apostles. We all know who apostles are. The word apostle means a sent one. It refers to somebody who's sent with a commission, who's an ambassador, a messenger. In, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus called his 12 disciples, and then it says, and he appointed 12 apostles. Disciple is a learner. An apostle is a sent one. Those twelve disciples became his apostles, but there were many more disciples that weren't apostles. In this technical sense of the term, there were only twelve apostles, and they had to meet certain prerequisites. Read the New Testament carefully, you'll find there were at least three. Not only were they commissioned by God to be messengers, but they had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection. We find that in Acts 1. They had to be chosen personally by Jesus Christ, and they had to be able to perform miracles. That's very clear. Those three are always associated with apostles. That is not always, but I mean, those three things are many times associated with apostles. So it leads us to believe there are three prerequisites. They would be eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Don't know any of them around today. They had to be personally chosen by Jesus Christ. While I was chosen to preach the gospel by Jesus Christ, I wasn't in the sense that I mean that. I don't think anybody around today was. And they had to be able to perform miracles. There are some who claim they can. Maybe they can. I'm not sure. But anyway, I'm of the opinion that the apostles were the foundation of the church because Paul said that back in chapter 2 of Ephesians in verse 20. That the apostles and prophets were the foundation. You only need one foundation. You put it at the beginning of the building then you build a superstructure on top of it. And they existed in the foundation period of the church. And God gave them the unique ability to perform miracles to validate the message they were preaching. Now, in a sense, we're all apostles, but not in this technical sense. In a technical sense, there are none. In a wider sense, every believer is a sent one. Jesus said that he has, even as the Father sent him, so he sent other believers. We are all sent as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. So in that sense, we're all apostles. The second one is prophet. A prophet is an exhorter or a preacher. 
He receives special revelation from God and then and then passes that revelation on to men. He's In the New Testament, he was basically itinerant in his ministry. He went from place to place. He didn't minister in tongues or in trance. He ministered to edification and exhortation and comfort, according to 1 Corinthians 14.3. He had the ability to understand mysteries and all knowledge, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4. But back in Ephesians 2.20, it says that the prophets likewise were the foundation of the church. See, God spoke to them directly because the word of God had not yet been written down. And, and those early churches didn't have God's word and they needed a word from God and it came through the prophets. But we have God's word. God does not speak to us directly. Now he speaks through his word. So in the technical sense, there are no prophets today. There are prophets in a wider sense. Everyone who proclaims the word of God is a prophet. But in this Limited technical sense. The gift of prophecy has ceased. Third, evangelist. He gave some to be evangelists. It's obvious what that means. It means one who announces good news. In the New Testament, he was basically, again, itinerant. He built on the superstructure laid by the apostles and prophets. He brought people to a knowledge of Jesus Christ by sharing the good news of eternal salvation through the shed blood of Christ. And people came to know the Savior and they were built into the building, added to the body. And I don't see any evidence that that gift does not continue. So I would, I would certainly assume that there are men with a gift of evangelism today. God has given them to be, the ability to be evangelists both a title and an office and a function, you see. And then finally, God gave some to be pastor-teachers. The word pastor means shepherd. We all know what a shepherd is. He takes care of the sheep. He aids in the birth of young sheep, and he feeds the sheep and nurtures them, and guides them, cares for them. God gave some to be shepherd-teachers, one of the basic means by which the shepherd in the New Testament church cares for his sheep and helps his sheep and assists his sheep is by feeding them the Word of God, teaching them the Scriptures. Now, I'm of the opinion that the pastor-teachers of Ephesians 4 were the elders in the church at Ephesus. And I think I can demonstrate that, maybe not beyond all shadow of doubt in every case, but at least to my satisfaction, if you hold your place in Ephesians 4 and turn back to Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is addressing the elders of the church at Ephesus. He called them to the little town of Miletus, and he gave them a little talk that they sorely needed. And in Acts 20, 28, he said to those elders, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers, to shepherd, that's the word, to shepherd the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. It was the elders who were supposed to shepherd the church at Ephesus. So when you get to Ephesians and read about the shepherds, by comparing that with Acts 20, 28, you would imagine that the elders at Ephesus were the shepherds, you see. Now turn to another passage of Scripture, and that is 1 Timothy chapter 5. When Paul wrote to Timothy, Timothy was leading the congregation at Ephesus. It's the very same church. So by putting these together and realizing they are written to the same church, it helps us understand what this is all about. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in word and doctrine. It was the elders who taught the word. 
It was the elders at Ephesus that shepherded or pastored. It was the elders at Ephesus that taught the word. So when we read in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, chapter 4, verse 11, God gave some to be pastor or shepherd teachers, it would seem the obvious conclusion to come to is that they were the elders at the church at Ephesus. They held the office of elder. They were gifted as pastor teachers, and so they performed that function. And I think that's the way the New Testament church operated. That doesn't mean that there was no one in the church who had the gift of shepherding other than elders. There may have been many people, men, women, young people, who had the spiritual gift of shepherding. That doesn't mean there there wasn't anybody in the church at Ephesus that had the gift of teaching that wasn't an elder. There were probably many teachers in the church, some of whom were not elders. But there were a group of people who were called the shepherd teachers. And according to Acts 20.28 and 1 Timothy 5.17, I don't think there's any question but that they were elders. The shepherd teachers in the church at Ephesus were the elders. And all elders, whether they're paid or whether they're lay elders, need to be performing the functions of the shepherd teacher. When these gifted men are working together, doing the job they're supposed to be doing, which we'll learn next Sunday night in verses 12 to 16, then there's going to be unity in the body of Christ. That's what Paul teaches. That's what this passage is all about. And as I said before, and we'll say again because I think it's so important to repeat it, the next few verses in this chapter, verses 12 to 16, could well be the most important passage in the New Testament that tells the church how to do the job God gave it to do. There's so many churches, and us included in some cases, in some areas of our ministry, that are not doing the job as God wants it to be done, and therefore they're not doing the job. It's not getting done. We need to learn how God wants us to do it. We'll learn that next week. Meanwhile, we need to understand that Jesus gives gifts to every believer. And he gives gifted men to believers to do their jobs so that when we all work together, there's going to be unity and harmony and love and effectiveness in the body of Christ. Maybe you don't even know the gift giver. Maybe you've never met Jesus Christ. You've never accepted Him as your own personal Savior from sin. And all this is so far into you, you don't even know what's going on tonight. May I invite you to come to know Him? He's alive today. And He's revealed to us through His Word. And He's offered to enter our lives in the person of His Spirit and give us everlasting life. And that can be yours. If you're willing to acknowledge your sin and believe that Jesus Christ died on that cross in your place and open your heart to Him. Why don't you do that tonight? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that You'll help us to understand how You want us to do the work You've called us to do. And I pray, Father, that as we put these principles into operation in our own lives and in our own local church, we may see the power of the Holy Spirit expressed through us as never before. And we do pray, Father, that there are some who are not members of the body, who have never been born anew by faith in Jesus Christ. You'll convict of sin and bring them to the cross where our Savior provided for their salvation. We ask it in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message by Dr. Richard L. Strauss. Copyright 2021. Spiritual Gold, Inc. All rights reserved.
For more on this ministry and for additional resources, be sure to visit spiritualgold.org.